Hello and welcome back to Lost in the Long Boxes. I'm Ryan. And I'm Joshua. I'm Steve. And this time we are going to be sitting down and having a talk with Stephen Bissett. We have him here. Uh, really excited to really excited to pick your brain. Uh, before we get into that, just the uh, usual plugs, patreon.com slash lost in the long boxes. We are desperately pleading for your money. We started a few episodes asking nicely. Now we're just begging you. A dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month, it really goes a long way to help us provide a better product. And I always like putting a a little plug for Kickstarter. Some of the... um... Some of the best and uh, like upcoming artists, I think, really get their uh, get their best work done on Kickstarter. Trying to do some of these uh, new independent series, and uh, it's an e- exciting uh, direction, I think, for uh, for comics there. So I always love uh, for people to support their uh, Kickstarter. And to boot, uh, support your local comic shops, everybody. You know, I, I, I go to Comic Boom and Keen. If your comic shops aren't open, uh, I'm sure they have a website. Go and support your local comic shops. They need you. Especially during these times, which has become like the, the tagline for anything anyone says. <laughs> so true. During these times. Uh, during these times. Well, I guess to start off, Steve, if you'd like to, or Steven, if you'd like to tell us a little about yourself, uh where you grew up, and how you kind of fell into illustration and comic books. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here we go, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm laughing in part. As I said to Ryan, I've done a number of interviews this week, and this is the first question every time. Oh, I bet. So, I bet. I'm sorry. <laughs> let's, let's see how I can spin this in a fresh way, fresh and novel way. Um uh, Here, I'll cover some ground I didn't cover with the others. Um, I... Um, I grew up up in northern Vermont. I was born in a hospital up in Burlington that's no longer there. It was a Catholic hospital. Uh, I think it's all been folded into that UVM medical center complex one way or another. So, you know, I, I, I guess in my, I don't have a fetal memory of this, but I guess uh, probably nuns caught me, and that explains a lot right there, right? You know? <laughs> um and, uh, you know, my early years uh, were in Essex Junction, Vermont. My, my family had a house on Jackson Street uh, in Essex Junction, Vermont. And, um, you know, it was a small, very suburban uh, Vermont neighborhood. And it was the kind of neighborhood where, you know, we kids were free to move around. There wasn't a lot of traffic that I recall. I don't remember ever almost getting hit by a vehicle or anything, but... I remember hanging with the kids across the street. Um, I remember my older brother, Rick. Uh, he had uh, best friends that were on the corner a couple houses down from our place. And I bring them up because that's the first time I remember seeing literally stacks of comic books. You know, comic, oh, books, yes. you know, comic books were everywhere back then. I, I was born in 55. So, you know, right in the, the, the heart of the Silver Age and what's yep, now called the sure, Silver yeah. Age. So, and some of my earliest fondest memories is going with my mom uh, down to Towns Market, which was in that little clutch of shops that are still there by the train tracks. It was like in that area where the Essex Junction train station, the building's still there. I don't know if the train still runs there or not. And uh, Towns Market was, you know, a little magazine tobacco shop. 
And that that was my first, you know, uh, experience with spinner racks and comic racks. And uh, my mom bought me, uh, there was a, a, a publisher back then, Gilberton, best known for the Classics Illustrated line. And yes. I'm, not, I'm not sure how they did distribution, but Classics Illustrated was everywhere when I was a kid, you know? Mm. Uh, yep. Local pharmacies mm. and magazine shops all would have a portion of a spinner rack uh, or the magazine rack dedicated to the Classics Illustrated, and they kept their titles in print. So, you know, even though it was from the 1940s, I, I bought Frankenstein. You know, that was the only monster comic that was out at that time because Gilberton and Dell were the only two publishers who weren't uh, straightjacketed by the comics code. Um, yeah, right. But the, the comic I remember in particular was uh, Classics Illustrated did a series of um, uh, square-bound comic book format, similar to the format of the old Superman and Batman giant annuals. Yep. And it was called The World Around Us. And yes. every issue would have a different uh, subject. And the one I dug, of course, was Prehistoric Animals. And it mm. had this beautiful ah, cover okay. painting of these two dinosaurs, um, a Triceratops and a T-Rex fighting. And that, was my, that comic was my first addiction that got me wanting to draw comics. I copied every page in that comic that had a dinosaur on it. And I ignored all <laughs> the pages that had people on it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I do remember I wore that comic out, that my mom did something unprecedented and that she never did again. Uh, she bought me a second copy because she could see how much I loved that comic and how important it was to me. And I had literally worn out the first copy. The pages were just falling out of it. Um, and I remember having a scrapbook. Um, and in fact, a lot of the images that really bounced in my head were... Uh, panels I cut out of comic books that were either mine or comics that had been handed down to me uh, by my uh, older brother. And it was a lot of uh, War That Time Forgot, you know, the Andrew yep. and Esposito artwork for yep. the Star-Spangled War Story, War That Time Forgot. And there were panels in there from a Mighty Mouse comic that I have never found. I have always looked for this Mighty mm -hmm. Mouse comic. <laughs> and it was uh, <laughs> Mighty Mouse and Oil Can Harry in the age of the dinosaurs. And I cut oh, out wow. some of the panels and stuck them in my scrapbook, but I have never found that comic again. And it had to have come out around, you know, 1959, 1960, 61 at the latest. Cause, um, I, I imagine it was from 59 or earlier. Um, and, uh, and you know, that's what got me into comics and, and they were everywhere. My family moved to Duxbury, Vermont, D U X B U R Y Vermont. It's across the, the Winooski river from, uh, Waterbury, Vermont. And oh, okay. that's where I spent my formative years, like age five until my preteen years. Um, and that I, I ended up going to Harvard union high school. Uh, which is also in Duxbury, Vermont. I was a member of the first ever class that um, attended uh, Harwood Union from grade seven up to my senior year. So I was in that, that first class that really, you know, our whole junior high and high school experience was at, at, uh, at Harwood Union. Um, oh, okay. So, you know, and all through those years I drew. Uh, I never lost my love for drawing. My first love... Uh, during my teen years was I wanted to make movies. My, I really love yeah, movies, okay. and I love cinema. But back then, 
the only technology available to us in the 60s was 8mm or Super 8 silent film. And it just yep. wasn't uh, satisfying. You know, it, it, I wasn't right. able to replicate with Super 8 <laughs> what I was seeing in the real world movies. And um, as a result, uh, for a number of other reasons, which I won't go into, uh, comics became my chosen path because it didn't cost me any money to draw comics. I just needed a piece of paper and drawing tools. I didn't have to convince any of my classmates to work with me, which was the another hard <laughs> part of doing filmmaking <laughs> or theater. Like you had to convince people your idea was so good right, that yeah, they right. should show up, you know, and that was almost impossible <laughs> to do. And, um, and I also realized that the only barrier I had was my skill set. Um, that, and I really believe that if I kept drawing, I would get better and, mm -hmm. and drawing like writing, like music, you know, it's one of those art forms where you can see the evolution of your own work and you can recognize, oh, I'm able to do something I couldn't do last year, or I, I, I'm able to draw something now better than I could draw it four years ago. And so that kept me going. And I had yeah. a couple of yeah. friends and classmates that I would show my sketchbooks to and, um, and that was it. You know, that's what that's what really kept me going. I, I've said thanks before, and I'll say it again. Uh, you know, I had uh, friends growing up. My first close best friend was Mitch Casey. Uh, we recently got back in touch with each other via social media. And Mitch was the one that drew the first comic book I ever saw uh, another human being draw. He did a little mini comic. He folded oh, cool. a couple of pieces of paper and turned it into a little comic. And, and that blew my mind. That was really the beginning of my you know, drawing comics was thanks to Mitch Casey. So everybody out there, if you dig anything I've ever done, you owe a thanks to Mitch Casey. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mitch. Shout out to <laughs> Mitch Casey. And, and then in my high school years, you know, I had friends like uh, Bill Hunter, Alan Finn. Uh, one of my closest friends was James Harvey, who's a, a still active jazz musician, lives up in northern Vermont. Um, you know, the, uh, Joe Chase, who I'm still friends with. She's a librarian in Waterbury now. Those kind of friendships are what keep you going during those years. They were the only people that yeah. I showed the work to. Um, right. And um, and then I lucked into an art teacher at uh, Harwood Union, a gentleman named William Cathy. And he was our art teacher there. And, you know, New England, <laughs> New England small school art classes are a pretty, pretty dire experience, you know. <laughs> set up milk cans, maybe a cattle skull if you're lucky, you know, and that's the still life you've got to draw or something. And yeah, there were there were less than fifty people in my graduating class in in a Freeport, Maine. <laughs> oh man, I mean the whole of Harwood Union was five hundred students, like all oh, classes wow. put together. There were five hundred students when I was there. So oh god, um, so I'm from graduated classes, Ryan, that were like you know seventeen people or twenty five right. people, you know. Um, <laughs> But Bill recognized something. He saw, I, he somehow saw one of my sketchbooks and he uh, brought me a comic. And he said, You can't tell anybody I've given this to you because I'd lose my job. And it was Zap. <laughs> it was the oh, underground uh, comic Zap. And I believe Zap, it was, yeah. I think it was Zap number zero. The, um, oh, wow. And I brought it home with me and I took everything Bill had set to heart. Like I hid it in my backpack and I made sure my parents didn't see it. But when I read Zap, it's like that really blew the, the barn doors right. off for me. And it wasn't just the scatological content 
um, it was it was <laughs> that I realized um, that I'd been wearing blinders. That I thought drawing comics meant they had to look like four color DC, Marvel, Archie, Harvey, Classics Illustrated, Dell comic books. And reading right. Zap made me realize, oh, anything I imagine, I can put on paper. It was like right. getting. Uh, you know, the ultimate hallway pass, if you will. <laughs> that I could go anywhere and I could, I could tell any kind of story. I could make a comic about anything. And, and, uh, and it was really, you know, that experience of Bill handing me Zap and trusting me to, to hand me Zap, uh, yep. it was just as important as that moment I saw Mitch Casey drawing Attack of the Giant ZT Flies. So those are the two <laughs> events that got me you know, on the path of drawing comics for a living right there. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's very that's cool. Awesome. Yeah. That's and cool. that's awesome. I notice you've carried the theme of like dinosaurs throughout the, like the, most of the body of your work, um, the, your, your work in tyrant, uh, uh, there and stuff. That was incredible. My daughter, just as a, on a personal note, my daughter was enthralled, by you know the parts showing the the developing uh uh tyrannosaur and and it pipping from the egg and everything she was so thrilled with those she loves dinosaurs oh wow that's cool um, yeah <laughs> hey i've never outgrown them and um, uh one of my frustrations as i made my way professionally into the comic book field is uh no editor no publisher ever seemed interested in you know doing a dinosaur comic yeah. I, I pitched oh, really? it again wow. and again and again, and I also rejected pitches from uh, publishers, including DC Comics one time, uh, Fanagraphics at one point. You know, they would reach out and they'd say, oh, Steve, you love to draw dinosaurs. We have this dinosaur project. And I'd say, oh, let me look at it. And it would be some project that, however well-written, however well-crafted, meant uh, let, let's say it would be, it would have been 48 pages total. It would be 40 pages of bullshit and eight oh, pages yeah. of dinosaurs. It's like right. every, uh, pop cultural template that we had, uh, that was trafficking, uh, as how you did a dinosaur comic involved all kinds of laborious setup. It would either be a time travel story or a variation on the lost Island story or, you know, some science fiction conceit that would get human beings uh, interacting with dinosaurs. And that interested me not at all. I wanted to tell the life story of a dinosaur. I wanted to do the equivalent yep. without the anthropomorphism of um, Bambi or Black Beauty or, you know, the right. Ernest Thomas Seton books of, you know, an animal's life. And that's what interested me. Um, yeah. And as a result, I ended up self-publishing Tyrant. And of course, the irony was I had pitched it to Dark Horse probably around 1990 or 91. And they said, oh, we have something just like that <laughs> in the works, you know. Um, and, and did, they, late, did they really? Well, Ricardo Delgado did the Fantastic Age of Reptiles. And it turned oh, out that, right, you know, right, that yeah. I don't think that was the project that they had on the hopper at the time that I had approached uh, Randy Stradley and Mike Richardson. But what Dark Horse ended putting out was Age of Reptiles, which is one of my all-time favorite comics, of course. Um, right. Mm. So um, so there you go. Yeah. Perhaps perhaps you put into, the, into their minds that they have to do something 
dinosaur. So you you helped create that comic in your own way. Perhaps. I don't think so. I think it was just you know I I keep finding times in my life where you think you're onto something that <laughs> nobody's done and it's out there. Somebody else is right. doing it. You know, it's yep. just the way the cultural zekis works, and we're all drawing from the same sort of unconscious aquifers that you know the same sort of things that are moving around in the the, the mass consciousness um and i've seen that happen with my yeah. friends work you know rick veach worked for months uh, a year or more on um abraxas and the earth man before the first uh chapter even saw print in epic oh, illustrated wow. this was back in you know the the 1980s um and yet the very month that the first chapter of Rick's Abraxas and the Earthman saw print in that particular issue of Epic, heavy metal, gasm, yep. like every adult newsstand science fiction comic magazine had a, a space whale or a sky whale story that all came out oh, the same month. Wow, yeah. that's, that's funny. They didn't know about Rick, and Rick didn't know. I know for a fact Rick didn't, wasn't aware of what they'd been doing. And in the case of heavy metal, they were reprinting something from you know, Spain or Belgium or France. So it was work that we hadn't had any access to. Right. And it was just out there. You know, it was just out there. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's all this evidence of uh, this collective conscious when it comes to creative things. I mean, you just look at the patent office, like it'll spike with the same idea all at once. It's very eerie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I, I, I have a book that came out earlier this year uh, for a line of... Uh, of cinema publications that are that that are published under the moniker of the Midnight Movie Monographs, and I did a book on David Cronenberg's The Brood, uh, which is one of my mm. favorite horror movies from from 1979. Yeah. Okay. And in researching the book, um, I end up, you know, there's a couple of chapters where I I bring the reader through David Cronenberg's body of work, and a lot of people uh, compare Cronenberg's first commercial feature film which played the rest of the world as shivers and opened in America as they came from within. It's about these, um, these sexual parasites. That, uh, I've that, seen that. I've seen yeah, that. Yeah. It's an horror amazing movie horror movie. Yeah. This, it's it's this really good. Single. It's this brand new single apartment complex that, uh, opens up and the, it's this, uh, hermetically sealed apartment living complex. And these yeah. things get loose in there and start infecting everybody. And it was, a mind-blowing movie when it was made in 1975. It, it kicked up all kinds of shit up in Canada yep. because it had been funded in part by uh, the film development uh, uh, funding that had been put in place by the Canadian government. And you, oh, you can that's imagine right. they did get government funding. That's right. Well, but it was the first one of the movies they'd funded that actually made a profit. Oh, wow. <laughs> but the reason I mentioned that, the reason I mentioned the, the Brood book and the reason I mentioned that is a lot of people had for years and years and years uh, argued that Cronenberg had uh, borrowed the concept um, from uh, a, a famous science fiction novel. Um, and the science fiction novel that they were thinking about uh, was uh, by the author of Crash, um, which, uh, you know, later on, Cronenberg uh, did make a movie um, from. Right. Uh, and what it, what it is, is that um, uh, everybody thought that Cronenberg had um, cribbed shivers uh, from J.G. Ballard's uh, first novel, uh, which mm. was, I'm bringing it up now uh, just to make sure I get 
the the year correct. High oh, rise. Sure. And High Rise was published in 1975, the same year that uh, Shivers opened up, uh, you know, was filmed and opened up theatrically in, in film festivals. Um, oh, but okay. in researching my brood book, what I found is Cronenberg had been circulating his script for years. He had scripted uh, Shivers under the title Invasion of the Blood Parasites. <laughs> And had tried to sell it to Roger Corman, um, you know, had been trying to find a home for it. So Ballard wrote High Rise, which is about the breakdown of civilization in an apartment building, <laughs> in a luxury apartment <laughs> building, where everybody in there ends up descending into, you know, complete mayhem because it's impossible to sustain uh, civil living when all the support networks collapse. Right. Uh, and yep. here's Cronenberg with Shivers you know, with a very similar scenario. And yet there is no way that Ballard or Cronenberg could have been aware of one another's work. Neither of them copied the other. Um, and there's a couple of other instances that I trace in the brood book of similar things happening. So yeah, you know, we work and work and work on something that we think is uh, original. There I was trying to find a home for my dinosaur comic with no human beings in it. And, you know, uh, <laughs> it turned out, uh, other people were doing similar projects. It's, it, you know, it's just out there when it's out there. Yeah. Very, sure. very eerie. Also like, so Steve, I had a question for you. Um, you know, you're born and raised in Vermont, you know, uh, Northeast influence. Uh, you have Stephen King, who's a master of horror as well. You know, you know, lives in Maine. Um, I know that you're really into like cryptozoology. Is there something about, the Northeast that, that lends itself to, um, these type of mythos? Um, well, you know, it's old country up here and it feels old country up here. Um, you know, we go out to the West coast, uh, and I mean, I, I got to spend off and on, uh, over a period of a year and a half, a fair amount of time in Santa Fe, New Mexico and, and that region. Yep. And that's really old country in a very different way, a very, very different way. Um, you get out to the West Coast and anywhere in the proximity of the Rockies and you realize, um, you know, we don't have mountains in Vermont. We have pimples, you know, they, they've all been, <laughs> but that's because they, they had been eroded down by the movement of glaciers in the prehistoric past. Um, there was a time when, um, you know, the geology of New England was much, much different. And, and over millions and millions of years, uh, all of that shifts. And um, so in a lot of ways, New England is feels old in a way that other parts of the country do not. Um, we are also, you know, this is where colonial America took root. Um, and uh, yeah, the origins of what became the United States of America lie with the original colonies, Virginia and, and uh, uh, Massachusetts and so on. But uh, it's really... Um, you know, the northernmost parts of New England that uh, still have this weird feel about them. And I don't think we're unique in that way. I mean, I, I was, I've got a lot of friends who are into horror writers and horror novelists and horror cartoonists, and they're from all over the fucking place, you know. Yep, <laughs> w yep. Wisconsin is just as dark and fucked up. <laughs> um, and, you know, same with California, same with the state of Washington, you know. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I've chosen to stay in Vermont. 
it really ha was a life choice for me. I, like a lot of people, I did some exploring when I was in my 20s. And then once I um, met uh, uh, the partner who became my first wife and we chose to settle down, we chose to settle down in Vermont in part because it felt like a hospitable environment to raise kids. And there's a lot of times in our life, you know, I had a work opportunity that required moving to Los Angeles and we chose no because, you know, we, we had our, our, our daughter had been born by then and that was not anywhere we wanted to be raising our kids. Um, yeah, so it was right. really by choice that we were here. But in terms of your question, you know, I, Vermont does not have as deep um, a cultural history in the genre as, say, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Upper New York right. State. You know, we don't have right. a Washington Irving. We don't have uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know, we don't have that kind of literary figure from the early years of American literature who was who hmm. was uh, pioneering in the genre. There's individual poets and writers that um, were working in Vermont, but there's a reason that people who love horror and live in New England cling to to stories like the fact that H.P. Lovecraft came up from Providence once and right. you yeah. know, visited. Right. Uh, uh, a Vermont poet down in Guilford, Vermont, you know, and there's all this crap that's since been, um, I don't know, congealed around that, that visit, you know, uh, my, right. my friend Joe Citro is one of the great Vermont novelists and, and definitely Vermont's great folklorist, um, for this generation that we're part of. And Joe had to research and try to suss out if there was anything of any substance to this account that popped up of a creature called the Awful. And oh. whoever it was who had cooked up the Awful was um, claiming that it was associated with a trip that H.P. Lovecraft had somehow made way up into northern Vermont. And Lovecraft never made a trip way up into northern Vermont. You know? <laughs> yeah. he, he may have gotten as far north. We know he got as far north as Bellows Falls. And Townsend, because when he wrote his short story, Whisper in Darkness, it's set right around that part of the state. Right. Um, but, you know, back in the 1920s, how would you travel north? There were the trains. That was about it. And, right. and, uh, and the awful turned out to be, you know, so much fabrication. Um, hmm. and, and I bring that up as an example of, you know, Vermonters who love the horror genre trying to fabricate this early 20th century legacy that... Create their own mythos around... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we don't yep. need to go that path. But, you know, most of the, <laughs> most of the, the uh, really uh, odd cryptozoological um, events associated with Vermont uh, do go back to colonial times. Uh, again, uh, working with Joe Citro on the Vermont Monster Guide, Joe shared with me the material he had on old slippery skins, um, which was this giant bear or bear-like creature that terrorized uh, uh, people that were living out in the deep woods during the colonial era. Um, and it's impossible to tell from the accounts. Was it just a large bear? Was it something like a Sasquatch, you know, an Eastern Sasquatch? Who knows? Yeah. Um, right. So that's where I look for our genre roots, you know, those kind of stories. And, of course, Joe has documented tons of terrific ghost stories and paranormal activity stories that date back to the 1700s, the 1800s. Um, 
I, I think it's weird enough up here in the 20th century that I, during the time I've been around it. <laughs> and, you know, you guys started out by citing Stephen King. I mean, obviously, uh, King alone has put Maine on the map as a, as a prime, right. uh, prime real estate in the horror genre. But even then, I mean, you know. Yeah, there's, there's no real lore here that, yeah, that's actually, like, native to Maine. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is, but it's all linked to, you know, the Native American and the First Nation cultures. Right. And a right. lot of that stuff just we either appropriate culturally and and filter through, you know, our own repackage it. Yeah. Repackaging. Exactly. Or or, um, you know, or it, or it remains part of the tribal lore that we're not particularly privy to unless you're someone that loves um, tracking down any book or published accounts of of that kind of lore. Um, mm. And that stuff right. goes way back. I remember when my my net, sadly now late friend Steve Perry was starting work with um, my friend Tom Yates. Tom Yates was a member of the first year Joe Hubert class that I was part of, along with yep. Rick Beach and and yeah. um, uh, some of our other classmates. And Steve was from Maine. Uh, Steve Perry and his family are from Maine, and Steve had gotten his hands on, this is all pre-internet era, he had gotten his hands on some sort of um, 19th century published history of the state of Maine. And he found a reference to a Native American called Cusick the Tuscarora. And Steve built that into uh, the pitch that he and Tom Yates presented to editor Archie Goodwin up at Marvel Comics for what became one of the early comics in the... um, epic comics line called time spirits so you know some of that lore has fed into the pop culture but none of it has been as as prominent as um you know and popular as the body of work that we've seen from writers like stephen king um i was friends with um the late rick howdala uh, a novelist also from maine and my favorite of all of rick's work (laughs) he did a novel called the little brothers and the yeah. premise of Little Brothers were that there were these um, subterranean subhuman beings called the the Untasigahunk who lived underground, and they had some sort of a circular, uh, uh, circular um, life pattern, almost like a cicada, where they would only emerge every so many years. Um, and he built that horror novel, Little Brothers, around it. And Rick ended up writing uh, initially three short stories um, to extend that, and Rick... Uh, Hadala, uh, my artist friend Michael Zuli and I uh, decided that we would like to do a comic miniseries with the Untasigahung. And we pitched it to Dark Horse. We pitched it to Vertigo. Um, there was a period of about a year where we thought Dark Horse was going to do it. Uh, Mike Richardson had, had said yes to the pitch. Uh, and then nothing happened. We, we couldn't get any follow-up of any kind from them. So it never manifested... Um, as a comic, but Rick did repackage those stories and put them out in a single br- uh, volume. Um, and that's just one example of the kind of genre work rooted in New England, you know, lore uh, that that um, that's out there for people that want to go digging. Hey, Steve, do you think that your uh, your love of of you know New England lore and cryptozoology and stuff informed kind of like the approach you took when you worked on Saga of the Swamp Thing? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, Swamp Thing is a cryptid. Right. Yeah. And and my whole approach when I'm doing 
you know, whether I'm working as a writer or I'm working as an artist, my whole approach is I want to get to the primal meat of what is it that drives these characters or what is it that drives this life form. And yeah. um, right. we were all on the same page. I mean, before I was into Swamp Thing, I had read, you know, some issues of the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson, that original 10 issue run. Um, yeah. But I, I wasn't in love with it the way John Toddleben was. When I met John Toddleben, John came in second year of the Kubert School. So he started, Rick Veach, Tom Yates, and myself and our classmates, we started in September of 76. And John was part of the class that came in in September of 77. And his classmates included, let's see, Ron Randall, uh, Craig Boldman, um, Jan Dersima, Tom Mandrake, you know, people that have gone on to do large bodies of, of work that's, right. that are very well known in the comics field. But John loved Swamp Thing. John Toddleben was, out of all of us, he was the Swamp Thing um, devotee and fan. Um, mm. So when I got involved through Tom Yates landing the art job on the book, um, I approach it the way I approach everything, um, which is, okay, what's, you know, what is it that, that makes Swamp Thing tick? And I right. really wanted to, you know, to wrap my head around, you know, the the Green Man myth. There's yep. a lot of folklore and myth out there from many different right. cultures associated with Green Man or these vegetable beings that are usually tied to rites of fertility, um, uh, pre-Christian rites of fertility and so on. And luckily, of course, that's exactly where John wanted to go because John's love for John Tolliban's love for Swamp Thing uh, had already taken him to thinking about that. And when we lucked out and ended up working with Alan Moore, starting with issue 20 and 21, um, it turned out Alan wanted to go there too. And we just went for it. Wow. But it definitely so, was so... informed. It was definitely informed by my li lifelong obsession with uh, dinosaurs and cryptozoology. I mean, I've been into this shit since I was a kid. I, I still have yeah, a yeah. lot of the Frank Edwards and Ivan T. Sanderson paperbacks that I bought off the stand back <laughs> in the 60s. So uh, John Keel, you know, he was a really important writer to me. The guy who wrote the Mountain Mothman prophecies. Uh, oh, right, you know, I, right. I was yep. reading all those books as they came out. And... Um, I have to say, I even go back to, like, I was brought up in a military family. So my dad used to make us go and get a haircut, like, every two weeks. I'm not exaggerating. Like, <laughs> dad, we, we all had crew cuts, you know. And, uh, well, we shouldn't say we all. I, my younger sibling is, is my sister, Kathy. But my brother and I were, like, crew cut kids until my brother got older. And, um, and I bring that up because the only reading material... At the at Bob's Barbershop in Waterbury was either um, comic books. He had a great collection of comic books. Anytime you went in there, you know, mm -hmm. and it would be like Jimmy Olsen and Adventure Comics with the uh, with the uh, Le Legion of Superheroes and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the other reading was sport magazines. So it would be like Argosy and True, uh, as well as hunting magazines like Field and Stream, and that's where I first saw articles in magazines like Argosy about, you know, uh, sea serpents and is there a yep. Bigfoot? You know, that stuff was originally published in article form um, written by authors like Ivan T. Sanderson um, in those weird men's magazines 
it, those men's yeah. adventure magazines like Argosy and True. Oh yeah, Saga. Yeah. And you know, was another one. I've seen one of some them. of those covers. Yeah. Yeah, and that. So I was exposed to that stuff, you know, from age six and seven, and so it wasn't. It didn't feel weird to me that by the time I had my own my own disposable cash, and once I was you know age eleven, twelve, I could afford a fifty cent paperback. That yep. wow! By then there were paperbacks out there about flying saucers, serious business by Frank Edwards, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, speaking of New England lore, I mean, one of the best-selling books at that time was Incident at Exeter about the couple that were abducted yeah. in Exeter, oh, New Hampshire. Yeah. You know, that's right. So far away, New Hampshire felt very you know uh, dangerous to me as a kid. Like, oh, you could get abducted by flying saucers if you go to New Hampshire. That's right. That's where you're going to go to get. <laughs> um, and of course, I also grew up with stories about people seeing something in Lake Champlain, you know, and yep. that, that was oh, the Champy, we, right? We yep. went up to Lake Champlain, you know, every summer for family gatherings and picnics and to swim and stuff. And uh, I don't remember it being called Champ when I was a kid. I don't remember the word, the name Champ being attached to it till I was. In oh, the okay. It may have been commercialized just, that way at some. I point. just remember people yep. saying, "Oh, there's something in the lake, some kind of monster." And you know, when you're a kid, that means you sit on the beach when you're done swimming and you just stare <laughs> right. out there, stare at <laughs> it. <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or you're with the family on the on the ferry that goes across the river over to Plattsburgh, across the lake over to Plattsburgh, New York. And they're all looking out there. Oh, look at this. Look at the seagulls. And I'm looking for the lake monster, you know. Looking for the lake monster. <laughs> didn't, didn't, they have a, didn't they have a minor league baseball team for a while called the Lake Monsters up there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's But that was yep. all in the 80s, 90s. That's much more recent, you know. There was, oh, okay. None of, this shit, <laughs> none of this shit was an accepted part of the, you know, day-to-day life in the 60s. It wasn't until... Flying saucers were, but it wasn't until the 70s, really, that cryptozoology, I never even heard that term until, you know, Lauren Coleman's uh, books. Um, yep. So, it was just weird shit, is what we called it. <laughs> now, is the, is, the rest of, is the rest of your family, or your siblings at all, are they into cryptozoology? Or no, nah, I'm the only one. I, I, the only I one. was the weirdo. I was the black sheep of the family, <laughs> you know, two, no two ways about it. Uh, yeah. I, I'm speaking to uh, three more black sheep. <laughs> I'm the middle kid, you know. I was the one. Yep. My right. dad could never figure me out, and and I was also the one that was easiest because I could just sit on the kitchen table with a piece of paper and a pencil, and I was happy, you know. And right. And I was the kid that would scour the TV guide and watch all the movies I could finagle a way to watch um so in a lot of ways and and it, this just made no sense to my dad blue collar military upbringing that made no sense to him it wasn't until the second he met the the nanosecond he met joe Kubert, my life changed yeah yeah because because joe's joe was a man's man right joe had like right. a bone right. crunching handshake <laughs> right um, and, and joe had been in the military and Joe had a whole parcel of kids. And right. the minute my dad met Joe, it was the first time in my life that my wanting to do comics was suddenly okay. And that It was happen. legitimate at that point. That didn't happen until I was 21, guys. Wow. You know? Wow. So I'd been fighting with my dad for the first 21 years of my life that the things I were, were – all the stuff I was into and what I loved to do 
that it was a sensible path to take. I might as well have been saying, Dad, I'm going to build a nuclear submarine and live in the North Pole. I mean, it was just as crazy <laughs> as that to say that I wanted to do comic books. But yeah. um, thankfully, the Joe Hubert School uh, announced that it was opening, and my dad insisted on going with me to the interview, and I'm so glad he did because um, Joe and my dad bonded the second they met. Like, these two guys understood each other. They were the same generation. There was this, you know, really deep-seated uh, acknowledgement and understanding between them that the minute they locked eyes and shook hands, everything I wanted to do was suddenly okay. Um, that's that's awesome. really cool. I was going to ask about your Kubert uh, School experience, but but wow, that's really great. But uh, that was kind of like what legitimized your father's view of your being into comics. Oh, yeah. Because you're going. Yeah, wow. That's pretty yeah, interesting. Definitely. I had saved enough money from working all through my high school years. And that year, I took a year off between graduating uh, high school and starting college. I had saved enough in the bank. And college used to be, you know, much more affordable. <laughs> right. um, yeah. but I was able to pay out of my own account from, for three years of college and that was two years at Johnson State College up in Johnson, Vermont I think it's now part of the Northeast right. College it's no longer called Johnson State College um, mm -hmm. and I had enough in the bank to only afford my first year at Cubert School and I didn't know if I was going back it was a two year program I didn't know if I was going back for the second year and uh, that first year I made the most of it I I was one of the first students at the Cubert School who would pack up, I packed up my portfolio and I went into New York City and hit the art directors uh, every month while I was there. And it was, yep. that was a scary thing to do as a kid from Vermont. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, the, the, first, the first day, the first 10 minutes of my being in New York, getting off the bus at Port Authority. And this is when Port Authority and 42nd Street were really fucking scary places, right? Oh, I bet, yeah. This isn't, you know, this isn't the Walt Disney block that 42nd Street is now. This is when 42nd Street was the <laughs> That's deuce. like when the Guardian Angels were around and stuff, right? Oh, it was even, you know, one side... The 42nd Street was this weird heaven-hell to me because it was an entire block of just exploitation movies and porn shops. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's all that was on 42nd Street, right? <laughs> and on the south side of 42nd Street, it was all horror and action movies. And on the north side of 42nd Street, across the street, all the theaters were showing triple X movies and kung yep. fu movies. That's how it kind of broke out. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but I mentioned it because was, uh... the, the first time I went into New York and I got off the bus uh... in Port Authority and I walked over to Broadway, which was literally one block. I saw more people than I had seen all my life put together. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. Right? <laughs> Just walking in New York. And so it was, you know, and I bring that up because my dad knew I was serious. Like I had landed some paying freelance work before the end of my first year at Kubert School. And Joe mm -hmm. and his wife, Muriel, had a work program that Rick Veach and Tom Yates and some of our other classmates like Ron Zalmi and Kara Sherman Torino and Rick Taylor and that all, you know, we all were doing different kind of freelance gigs after hours working for Joe. Um, my dad knew I was serious. And because of that bond he had with Joe, my dad paid for the second year at Cubert school because he knew, oh, wow. I, he knew I wasn't wow. wasting my time. He knew I was serious. He knew yep. this was something I was really going to do. And that was, 
the blessing from my dad that I never thought I would get. <laughs> and and do you there think it was, that, uh... you know. You and your fellow alumni, uh, did you all remain like close, like close friends with each other, and also with Joe throughout his life? Or? Oh yeah, most of, many of them. We've, I mean, some of our old classmates we've lost track of. Uh, you know, okay. people, people. A, a lot of our classmates didn't pursue anything in the comic book field. Um, okay. you know, there are people we've kept in touch with, uh, but I've stayed very close friends with a number of my classmates. You know, including Rick Beach is one of my best friends in the world. And we met there at Kubert School the first day I was there. Um, I had very tight friendships with people who are sadly no longer with us, like Tara Sherman Torino um, and uh, some of our other classmates who've passed away over the years. And I've still got a lot of friends from uh, the classes that came in after us. Um, Tim Truman and his family, you know, we really bonded with Tim. And Tim came... I could be wrong, and Tim, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tim Truman uh, was part of the class that started in the fall of 79. I think he was the year after John Tottleman came in. And we bonded with Tim and his wife, Beth, like instantly. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we've got, we've, we've really kept friendships. I mean, uh, I just, this summer, jammed on a comic book cover with Tom Yates. We, we jammed and did a cover for a... Um, reprint uh, collection of uh, one of my favorite comics from when I was a kid, Kona, Co- Monarch of Monster Isle, and that's spelled yep. K-O-N-A. Um, so I even now, you know, when opportunity presents itself, um, that was the first time Tom and I had worked together since the 80s, I think. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, that was fun. It was fun. Um, yeah, you were quoted as saying that you, you left comics at one point, right, because of the generational shift or something like that? Well, I, I, I retired from the American comic book industry at the end of 1999. Um, right. It had become such a toxic environment by the end of the 90s. And I had worked for 25 years to get out of work for hire and self-publish. And in the mid-90s, uh, especially 1996, the whole direct sale market imploded. Yeah. Uh, within about right. three months, right. we went from uh, having uh, over a dozen distributors uh, that we could sell our work to to reach all the comic book and card shops across North America to one. That's when oh, Diamond wow. Comics ended up being yeah. the only distributor standing. And um, I tried to keep my hand in after that. And, you know, when I. I, I, I in one way, this is petty, but like I scripted um, uh, a Tarzan story for my mm-hmm. friend Tom Yates for Dark Horse Comics. Um, and I got the script in on time, and Tom uh, drew the story. It was called The Soft Parade. Um, I think it appeared in Dark Horse Presents. I could be wrong. I, don't, I know it wasn't for a Tarzan book, per se. It was a licensed Tarzan story that was done short form because it was appearing in some other anthology. Like, yeah, anthology or something. But I didn't get paid yep. for six months. Like, you know, oh, they wow. dragged their feet at Dark Horse, and I didn't get the paycheck until six months had passed. And that same year, I did what turned out to be my last ever drawing job for DC Comics. Um, our My friend Neil Gaiman wanted yep. John Tolliban and I to draw a little 10-page story called Jack in the Green which was yep. the second script Neil had ever shown to Karen Berger up at DC Comics. Um, mm-hmm. And it had never been published, but it had gotten... Neil, it was one of two scripts that had gotten Neil's foot in the door and led to 
uh, Neil and Dave McKean doing uh, the um, Sandman. No, Black Orchid. Oh, oh nice. Orchid. Black, yeah. right. Black Orchid, they, and that was uh, that was uh, uh, it wasn't in comic book form. It was um, I think they called it the prestige format at that time. It was four thin square bound uh, trade paperbacks, full color. But that's right, what got right. that's what got you know Neil's uh, foot in the door. But anyway, Neil asked for John Tolliver and I to draw Jack and the Green, and it was short. It was ten pages, so uh, it took a while to negotiate a contract with DC. <laughs> and the deal we negotiated was um, I was at the time um, uh, separated from my first wife. I had monthly child support payments, and I was working. Uh, full time at a video superstore in Southern Vermont, uh, down where you are, Josh, at First Run Video. Uh, in oh, Bradford. First okay. Run! Do I don't oh, I? Oh, First it? Run! I've first heard about Run that Video, first and run. I was I was yeah. I was one of the original shareholders when First Run opened its doors in 1991, and then after the direct sale market imploded, and I I pulled the plug on self-publishing because there there was no way to sustain. Even with us, I, I was, had really good sales on Tyrant. I mean, I was, yep. I was reaching about 32,000 readers a month. Uh, wow. Nice. Uh, wow. I shouldn't say a month. 32,000 readers an issue, but it took me almost a year to do an issue. But it was still sustainable, yep. right? Um, right? But when, when the direct sale market imploded, I ended up starting to work full-time at First Run Video. So I negotiated a contract with DC where... However many of the 10 pages I turned in, I would get paid for. Okay, so, because my thought was, all right, I'll do it three, three, and four, and I'll have the check coming in for the first three pages while I turn in the second three pages, and then I'll have the check coming in from those three pages as I finish the last four pages of pencils. Mm. So I turn in the right. first three pages, and I'm still working, and this is me working after hours. Like, I've done a full day on the floor Working yep. first oh, run God. video, wow, I yeah. come home, make supper for my kids, and then you know work at the drawing board after hours. So I'm you know pinch hitting this job into my yeah. actual day job, and I turn in the second batch of three pages, and no check. And I call uh, Karen Berger, and I said, Karen, you know where's the check for the first three pages? And I was told, oh, at Vertigo, we we don't pay on any job until it's all in. And I said. What? Oh, wow. We negotiated uh... the contract. It's in my contract that I can voucher for the pages as I turn them in. And Karen said, well, that's how we do it. And I said, and it was the end of that given month. I said, you just bought me a 60-hour work week. And because I was a manager, I could schedule myself extra hours at the store because I had a child care payment at the right. end of that yep. week, right? And the only yep. check I could count on was my Friday paycheck from the video store. Um, and I was pissed. It's like, then why did we go through all that negotiation? Like, why didn't you just say, these are the terms, take it or leave it, you know? And, yeah. um, and that's why when I yeah, turned wow. in the last page of that story, uh, at the bottom of the last page of Jack and the Green, in my handwriting, it says, goodbye, S.R. Bissett. And I asked Karen, please make sure that signature gets through production. Like, don't cover it up with a credit box. Don't black it out. You know, don't lay color over it. I want that scene. Um, and you know, the only person who knew why I wanted it, there was John Tottleben. That was the last swamp thing I was ever going to draw. Um, yeah. and you know, oh, yeah. as I say, it's petty in one way, but in another way, you know, twice in the same year, 
and I'm doing work for yeah, hire. Come on, that's yeah, well, yeah. And I was and, doing work for hire in part because during the separation process, um, my my personal attorney uh, had said, Steve, you cannot continue doing creator-owned work until you and your wife have you know worked your way through mediation and gone from separation to divorce because you're creating assets that are complicating the process. Oh, Here in God, the state of Vermont, right. if yeah. you're married, whatever you own is co-owned by the couple. And yep. my attorney said, you can only do work for higher work. So, you know, I scripted a Tarzan story for Dark Horse. I agreed to do this Swamp Thing story, you know, in part as a personal favor to Neil. And Neil was very happy with what we yep. did with the story. Uh, but in both cases, the publishers are dicking me around. Like, these are the freelance games I had worked so hard to get away from. And right. here I was, right back to paychecks being held up and, you know, for for no reason. Um, and I that was it. At the end of 99, I put an announcement on um, the Comic-Con.com discussion board that I was retiring from the industry. And um, that was it. I, I have not worked again for the American comic book industry with the sole exception of Chris Duffy. Um, yeah the editor at that time of Spongebob comics, uh, Chris Duffy came to me and said, Steve, would you draw some monsters for Spongebob? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my daughter Maya loves Spongebob. Maya's, Maya's in her 30s now, but she loves Spongebob. And I had yep. grandkids by then, and they love Spongebob. So, okay. <laughs> I, and I got to say, the pay was great on the Spongebob yep. comics. And... Chris Duffy is one of the four or five best editors I've ever had the good fortune to work with. But that was the only time I threw my hat back in the ring doing anything yep. with the American, American comic book industry, per se. In, in DC, uh, you and DC have, a, have kind of a history as far as uh, you were involved in the very first images of John Constantine in, in Swamp Thing 25. I mean... That right there is a, an amazing feather in your cap, uh, and and they have kind of refused to, I don't know, in a way, refused to acknowledge that, I think. Well, that's not entirely true. Let's keep perspective. No? We get royalties every quarter. Okay. Right? We meaning myself, John Taliban, uh, Rick Beach. Uh, yep. DC is the only company from that time we worked that we still earn royalties from. They okay. continue oh, okay. to well, honor those agreements. And in fact, during Paul Levitz's dynasty uh, at DC Comics, Paul Levitz was pretty much you know, the head guy at DC Comics. Um, Paul, behind the scenes, you know, in many ways, uh, sweetened the original invoice contracts that we had signed with the company. We earn royalties off of the reprints of our work. Um, yeah. We don't get money up front. You know, we, get, we get something off the back end. Um, and in the case of John Constantine, uh, dumb luck of the timing, uh, DC had changed its policy toward um, uh, sharing uh, the royalty pool with the creators of new characters and concepts. And Constantine first appeared after that change in DC's policy. We still earn every quarter something from John Constantine. In fact, oh, wow. we earn more from John Constantine than we get from Swamp Thing. Oh, wow. That's, uh, wow. Now, a few things for you to understand. 
we're getting a percentage of royalties. Like we get a little tiny fraction of a percent, okay? But we're getting a percentage of royalties, meaning if it's a product that does not bring money into the Warner Brothers coffers, we don't right. get anything, right? Uh. So when a TV show is created for a Warner network, no money is going to DC. So we don't get anything, right? Because gotcha. that's all corporate money shell game shit. Right. Oh, yeah. so you. But, so like if, they, if they do like a Justice League dark movie, you're not going to see any. Well, we do that. get something because Constantine oh, okay. generates royalties. But when they do Swamp Thing, we don't get anything. We only oh, earn royalties okay. off our pages being reprinted in book form. Okay. Um, okay. Because we didn't create Swamp Thing. Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, both of whom sadly are no longer with us, they created Swamp Thing. Okay? Uh, right. But we co-created Constantine. And uh, so we get royalties and I bring I'm I'm sort of finessing, trying to finesse your understanding of how royalties work, because when yeah. NBC did a TV show of John Constantine Hellblazer, we got nothing. I mean, I the oh, check was wow. like three hundred and twenty five dollars and I think it was a bonus. OK, um, <laughs> for a TV series. But yep. when John Constantine appears in a video game. The video game is a license. That's oh. major money that comes into Warner, and we get a share of that. And the time that we see significant royalties is when it's an option in a new media or an option uh, to um, some sort of media corporation outside of the Time Warner and now the AT&T Warner circle. That's when we okay. actually earn you know, a, 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 a nice... And it's manna from heaven. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know how much yep. it's going to be. It just shows up. So, mm, right. And that that that's a great thing. So I stress to you that you know we do we have it way better than prior generations of cartoonists that worked at DC. Yeah. Right. And also right. judging by what has happened over the last year and a half, I think we also have it better than the current generation of creators of DC because uh, AT and T's merger is changing how they work with their freelancers. And I can't it's, say much more like... about it than that because I don't know factually what's really going on. But I have been right. told, uh, you know, they're going back to flat fee, work for hire, that's it. And they're, It seems know... like everyone's kind of heading more towards Dark Horse than Image right now, right? Like doing creator-owned Yeah, well, titles. don't hold your breath for those guys either, you know? Dark yeah, Horse... you don't think so? Well, Dark Horse, look at, look at how much of, uh, uh, yes, there are the amazing case histories like Robert Kirkman and Charlie Adler with Walking Dead, okay? That's yeah. like an amazing breakout series, and Robert Kirkman, you know, gets to then have his hands into multimedia opportunities that present themselves, including, you know, one of the most popular TV series of the past decade. Right. Um, but that's rare. That's the exception. Um, uh, Dark Horse, I mean, all of us who work on the Aliens work are about mm -hmm. to eat the big shit sandwich of Disney, who just bought Fox, reprinting oh. all our work without negotiation, without payment, without royalties, without comp copies. And, that is so uh, wow. And we're not alone because Alan Dean Foster, the author of the Star Wars novels, uh, including Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, all those movie tie-in novels. Um, yep. He could not get any response from anybody at Disney. 
regarding uh, the work he had done on Star Wars. He wasn't getting royalties anymore. He wasn't getting any response. His agent couldn't get a response. His lawyer couldn't get a response. He finally went to the Science Fiction Writers Association, which he's an active member of, and their organization took a look at all the legal paperwork and have taken the unprecedented step of mounting a public um, announcement that they are going to take on Disney over the Star Wars and Aliens uh, oh, uh, wow. contracts. Wow. All right. This is the environment well, we're shit. in now, though, where, you know, here we are in our 60s and 70s. And, you know, this is not what rest, resting on your laurels is supposed to be about, you know. <laughs> right. um, nobody wants to get in legal battles with monoliths like Disney or AT&T. And yet, what are we supposed to do when a company like Disney, when their lawyers say flat out that when they buy assets, they only choose to honor the portions of the contracts that benefit them? And what are we supposed to do? You know, what are we supposed to do? And who, who advocates for you besides yourself? Yeah. So, you know, I, and it is a, it is a a rational worry to have. It's not an irrational worry to have, you know, what if AT&T grooms DC to sell it off to Disney? Will all our royalties from John Constantine and Swamp Thing evaporate in a heartbeat of some corporate acquisition? This is how the growth of, these super corporations in this unregulated economy that we all are living in now really function. And it's a, it's a way yeah. of fleecing uh, a generation of uh, creative individuals who had had a few good decades of actually earning off of some of their work um, being taken away uh, the same, but it, it, you know, it's another manifestation of the same way that the wall street, uh, wheelers and dealers out there figured out how to fleece the retirement accounts of airline corporations and <laughs> Coleman stoves and all these companies that they right. just buy up to suck dry and then dispose of. Um, so, so, does it surprise you, Steve, that so many uh, like so many upstart in- independent creators right now are going with the uh, the Kickstarter route? No, especially? not at all. Not yeah. at all. You know, I yeah, think exactly crowdfunding. I mean, bear in mind, I I just retired from fifteen plus years of teaching. And I was teaching at the Center yeah, for Cartoon congrats, Studies yeah. in White River Junction, Vermont. And um, and part of what I did year after year was to try to open my students' eyes to some of the legal issues that they inevitably will be confronted with um, right. as they continue um, with their work and as they continue with their respective paths. And crowdfunding evolved over that 15-year period. You know, I had yeah. students in the classroom introducing me to the concept of crowdfunding <laughs> when it was new. Um, and it's a uh, it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, you know, for some people, I mean, we, we've all seen examples or read examples of Kickstarters and, and uh, um, Indiegogo and, and all these different crowdfunding platforms where people end up funding a great deal more than they initially were looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in profit before they even go into print. And if any right. of you have kicked in on any of this stuff, as I have, you know from hard experience that the stuff doesn't always end up going into print. Sometimes you <laughs> yeah. kick right. in, your money's gone, and you got nothing at the end of it. Yep. Um, yep. yep. And uh, on the other hand, there's also plenty of examples, some of which things I did uh, kick in in, where they don't make their goal, and they get nothing. Um, yeah. 
Kickstarter yeah. is one of the platforms where you have to meet your goal or or that's just gone, you know. Yeah, right. uh, that's part of the reason I, I had suggested to students that they really consider platforms like Indiegogo and some of the others where go, whatever go money me, you right? raise, you get to work with. Right. Um, yeah. It's not a it's not a, a be all end all proposition. On the other hand, great as this is, a lot of that work is seeing print in a single print run uh, designed to satisfy that crowdfunded uh, window of opportunity. And then the work disappears and oh, you know, yeah, 10, yeah. 10 years from now i mean i'm already finding it in not just comics and graphic novels but when i'm trying to research films for some of the books i'm working on you can't get your hands on you can't see you can't find a lot of this work and some of it looks like brilliant work and I'm hoping that there are collections out there, maybe some of the libraries like Columbia University or the Billy Ireland Library in Columbus, Ohio, and so on, that have comics and graphic novel collections. I'm hoping they have funding that they set aside specifically to pursue, and I don't know what their selection process would be, some of the more upscale or more interesting-looking crowdfunding options. Because if you miss that print run, that's it. That book's fucking gone. Yeah, yeah, that's um, the it dies So we're on, looking yeah. at a golden age that we're in right now of terrific original creator-owned work coming out via crowdfunding. But that work is going to be impossible to assess the way we can look back at the Silver Age. And we can all agree on what was published back then. <laughs> yeah, we right. can look it up. We can find references to it. I mean, I've got books I, I went in on for crowdfunding in my personal library that I treasure, that I think are really significant works. Some of, the, some of them are some of the best graphic novels I've read over the last 10 years. And good luck finding a copy if you just hear about it today, because you won't. Right. It ain't yep. out there. The people who bought it are keeping it. Uh, some of that work, if it pops up on, on eBay or whatever, is so prohibitively expensive. Um, or ends up going justifiably for very high sums because that may be the only copy that's going to surface for the next two or three years, you know? Yeah. So right. the people who recognize what it is, and then there's the whole phenomenon of people who've been using crowdfunding as a way to fleece their, their reader base or their fan base. And I won't name names, but I imagine you guys have seen examples of that or know of examples of that. Yeah, certainly. That's definitely so, a... A theme, yeah. you, know. you know. If a single comic has just come out, and the only way I can get a look at it if I wasn't in on the Kickstarter or the crowdfunding is to drop 125 bucks for a 24-page, you know, comic on eBay. Well, that's a comic I'm not going to read. <laughs> that's what <laughs> I'm not going to see. Um, I, you know, God bless them that they can get it, but. Uh, that's just another variation on the multiple covers and all that junk bond shit that destroyed the comic business back in the nineties. Yeah, right. Well, maybe uh, go ahead. I was gonna. Oh, you you, you go ahead, Josh. I was gonna just you know, wrap it after you. Yeah. Uh, no. The go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say. Uh, I think that's probably all the time we have for this episode. But um, uh, we've Steve... gone on for a little bit. We've been one hour and nine minutes if we count all the. Stuff we did at the beginning, you're probably going to edit out. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Typically, we try to we try to cap our episodes at an hour because then after editing, usually you shave like you know five to ten minutes off, and then it's about a 40, 45 minute episode. So, 
Well, before um, we get off, let me plug some of my new work, if I may. Do it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My two, uh, we are talking, all three of us, all four of us, uh, in December of 2020, uh, during this uh, plague year that we're all in, I did manage That's right. to get two <laughs> new books out. Uh, one of them I mentioned earlier, it's um, a Midnight Movie Monograph is the name of the imprint uh, from Electric Dreamhouse and P.S. Publications, and it's a book called David Cronenberg's The Brood. Um, it is available at P.S. Publications' website. They are in the U.K., uh, and I've all seen, also seen copies pop up in some uh, U.S. Uh, book venues as well, including Amazon. Um, okay. And I'm really proud of the book. In the description, it's still yeah. available. It's still in print. It hasn't dropped out of print yet. Uh, and it is my magnum opus in terms of my film writing to date. 660-page book. <laughs> Great. Nice. Um, I also have a new book out from PS Publications that is a work of fiction that I collaborated on. I am not the primary author. Uh, it's a book called Studio of Screams. Uh, mm. it, was, it is a book that was conceived by British novelist and screenwriter uh, Stephen Volk who's one of my great heroes. That's spelled V as in victory, O-L-K. Um, yeah. He's the man who scripted uh, Ghost Watch, which was a BBC Halloween broadcast that so terrified yeah. England that the BBC never <laughs> broadcast it again. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Stephen Volk had an idea that he wanted to do a book that would uh, pull together four novellas of... Um, movie tie-in novels to movies that never existed. His idea was to make up a British film studio, which he called Blythewood Studios, yeah. and that these four original novels would be packaged as if it was a reprint of oh. movie tie-in novels from the 60s and early 70s. Um, That's a great that's idea. Great. So he that's pitched it idea. to his novelist friend Mark Morris, and Mark thought it was a great idea, and Stephen and Mark uh, invited in two other friends of theirs, Tim Levins and Christopher Golden. And once Chris and Tim were on board, Chris said, you know, guys, if you really want this to work, we need somebody to do a wraparound about the history of this Blythewood Studios. And I know the guy to do it. And Chris rang me up and said, Steve, would you do it? And I said, I would love to do it. <laughs> so um, I don't know what they were originally conceiving. I think originally their thought was that I would just write like an introductory chapter or something. And what I ended up pitching, which they all accepted, is I wrote um, uh, two framing pieces, a prologue and epilogue to the entire book. And yep. I wrote interstitials that go between each one of the four novellas. And oh, what, I, okay. what I set up is an academic professor researching Blythewood Studios tracks down the only surviving member of Blythewood Studios who agrees to an interview up at a little bed and breakfast in Quebec. Oh. And what the framing story is, is his interview with this fictional character, this movie producer who doesn't exist. Um, and in the grand tradition of anthology horror films like uh, Dead of Night from 1945 or Tales from the Crypt, um, my framing yep. story is also a horror story. There is a payoff in the punchline. So, oh, nice. so those are my two new books, The Brood and Studio of Screams. If you enjoy my work, um, I know it's not comics. I'm sorry, uh, but that <laughs> works out there. 
And um, for next year, I am hoping to have some, uh, some art books out. I have finished two sketchbooks that uh, cartoonist and close friend Mark Mastel, who did the, Sh the Swords of Sharpay graphic novel with writer Tom Snagowski. Uh, Mark has finished designing the books, and we're going to put them out as print-on-demand books next year. One of them is called Thoughtful Creatures, and the other one's called Brooding Creatures, and they're both just wall-to-wall -wall monsters. Uh, monster nice sketchbooks. So those will be out sometime awesome. over the winter. Yeah, very cool. We'll definitely plug those two you've got out in the episode description for sure. And as soon as you uh, as soon as you get those sketchbooks out, let us know, and we'll plug those two for you, Steve. Okay, cool. Sorry to be a huckster, but hey, you asked me on. You you get the hey, whole yeah. package. <laughs> that, that's fine. Hey, you're you're definitely way out of our out of our our league. You know, our our show is still pretty young. We're only two years in, and we we just hit 200 subscribers. So it's pretty cool to have a, a guy as high profile as you on here. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's Let, let's do it again sometime. Happy for sure yeah, it's absolutely really yeah. been an honor yeah yeah, yeah no. really it really has thank you so much steve and yeah i feel like we just kind of scratched the surface we i think we all have so many more questions for you so it'd be great to have you on in the future let's do it again you guys name the let's time and i'm on board i'm all set up now thanks to ryan so thank you ryan <laughs> hey <Nice>. no problem <laughs> i'll shut up so, so you uh, can wrap up your show well, hey, what do you? Uh, what questions uh, do you all have our listeners for for Steve and stuff? We can certainly pass them along to him, and uh, hopefully, you enjoyed uh, you know a glimpse into uh, his early life and his perspective on perspectives on the industry. Uh, once again, I'm Ryan. I'm Joshua. I'm Steve. This is Lost in the Long Boxes, and we'll talk to you next time.